going to be a series? Good morning, everybody. It's going to be three weeks, or as I've already said, two and a half weeks in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, and we're looking at Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Sometimes we confuse the Sermon on the Mount with just the Beatitudes, which is the first blessings that introduce the Sermon on the Mount. And so this morning, let's just take an, an overview of this of these um, three chapters, and I will begin with prayer. Let's pray together. <coughs> Lord God, we thank you for this opportunity of being in your word. We thank you for the worship that we've come from or are going to, and we ask for your blessing and your presence. Together we praise you in the name of Christ. Amen. I would say the Sermon on the Mount has had a profound impact on, on my life over the years. To me, it is Jesus' disciple-making sermon. The Gospel of Matthew is really structured around five sermons. And the first sermon is the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. Matthew 10 is the Sermon on Mission. Matthew 17, 18 and following is the Sermon on Community. Matthew 23 is the Sermon on the Temple. It's really a parallel to Jeremiah's Temple Sermon in Jeremiah 7. And then Matthew 23 and 24, Matthew 24 and 25 is the Sermon on the End of the World. If you were looking for a parallel between Matthew and the Old Testament, and maybe you're not looking for a parallel between Matthew and the Old Testament, it would be the book of Deuteronomy. In the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy is really composed of Moses' sermons to the people of Israel. So Deuteronomy and Matthew kind of go hand in hand. And then within Matthew, you've got these five sermons, the first one being the Sermon on the Mount. I don't know what verse you kind of use that captures something for you of the essence of the Christian life. For example, and this was in our scripture reading in the service, the great commandment, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your strength, all your soul. And then you think of the Great Commission, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I'm with you even to the end of the age. Or John 10.10, 10, I have come that you might have life and that you might have it abundantly. Or Romans 12.1 and 2, I beseech you, brothers and sisters, by the mercy of God, that you present your bodies, yourselves, your whole selves, as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service of worship. The reason I've given you all those verses, because I think Christians do tend to pick a verse that, that somehow captures the fullness of their Christian commitment. And it, it almost stays there as an ideal that one hopes to achieve by the grace of God, not by one's own self-effort. The place to find what those verses mean, the great commandment, the great commission, 
the abundant life, the living sacrifice, is the Sermon on the Mount. It brings it down to the daily, to the nitty-gritty, to this is what your life is about. It opens with blessings, an eightfold blessing, and and we'll probably we'll spend some time in that, hopefully, um, at the beginning here. But these beatitudes it begins with "Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven." Followed by seven more, and then a description, I'm giving you kind of an overview. I would love for you to read this paper through the week and the Sermon on the Mount, hand in hand, perhaps. But after the Beatitudes, there is this statement, this imperative, you are the salt of the earth. You are, not I hope you will be, but you are the light of the world. Followed that, Jesus talks about the fact that not one jot, not one tittle of the law is not going to be fulfilled. But the whole law is going to be fulfilled. You can't follow me on this. This would confuse you. That's, that's not what I'm doing. <laughs> uh, I'm giving you an overview right now of the sermon. So you've got the Beatitudes, salt and light. And I haven't come not to fulfill the law. I've come to fulfill the law in every aspect of the law. But your righteousness is going to have to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, which would have been a shocking idea that their righteousness, these ordinary followers of Jesus, are going to have a righteousness that is greater than the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. And then from that, from the salt and light and from the fulfillment of the law, there are six commands that Jesus gives. You've heard it said, but I say to you. Now, it's an authoritative I, first of all, to take count of. You have heard it said, but I say to you, love instead of hate, purity instead of lust, fidelity instead of infidelity, honesty instead of dishonesty, reconciliation instead of retaliation, prayer instead of revenge. Now, what that describes is the visible righteousness of the grace-filled believing community. That's how it looks to the world. Love instead of hate. Purity instead of lust. Fidelity instead of infidelity. Honesty instead of dishonesty. That's how we come across to the world. I find it very interesting that the description of the Christian, the follower of Jesus Christ, is the description from the standpoint of how to interact with the world. Not how to live in church, but how to interact with the world. So the visible righteousness, and that is oh, in verse 16 of chapter 5, in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So this is what people are supposed to see in us as the followers of Jesus Christ. Now in chapter 6, after having gone through those seven commands, beginning with fulfilling the law and then love instead of hate, ending with prayer instead of revenge, he begins, be careful then how you practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, 
you'll have no reward from your Father in heaven. So you've got the visible righteousness of how the world is supposed to see you, but now you have this hidden righteousness. And the three aspects of the hidden righteousness are giving and praying and fasting. And you know, within chapter 6, we have the Lord's Prayer when he talks about praying. Don't pray like the pagans do. And describes, I mean, it's, it's an interesting contrast. Tim Keller has said that religion makes really good Pharisees. But the Sermon on the Mount makes really good disciples. Religion makes really good Pharisees. The Sermon on the Mount makes really good disciples. So the visible righteousness of what the world is supposed to see, and I think that's tough. I think that's quite a high calling, love instead of anger, um, purity instead of lust. Those are hard. And then comes this concern for how we do our spirituality, how we give, how we pray. And that's not to be seen by people. That's to be seen by our Heavenly Father. You know, if you had that kind of balance, that kind of visible righteousness and that kind of hidden righteousness work together like that, that's a phenomenal picture of a follower of Jesus Christ. Following the Beatitudes and the commands are a set of prohibitions, do-nots. And there's five do-nots. Let me make sure that I get them right here. Uh, after the spirituality of the hidden righteousness, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. Do not serve two masters. Do not worry about your life. Do not judge and do not give to dogs what is sacred. Those are the five prohibitions. Well, and they all demand kind of commentary, reflection, and thinking through how Jesus develops them here. But get the, get the picture, the overall landscape of this sermon. The Beatitudes, the commands, the prohibitions. It really, those prohibitions are liberating when you think about it. We're not driven by the passion of building up treasure on earth. We're not driven by the passion of, of worry or by judgment or some kind of compulsive religious expression of the faith. I mean, these are liberating, I think. The interface with this is how they free us up. They don't become burdens, these do-nots. They become liberations uh, that free us up. And then finally, we move to a, uh, the conclusion of the sermon with a set of imperatives. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened. Uh, just like a good parent gives good gifts to children, so your Heavenly Father wants to give good gifts to you. Uh, go through the narrow gate. I love it here at the Advent, and I think about it all the time. I sit there on the, on the right side facing the pulpit. Really a good place to hear the preacher always is where I kind of pick. And... It seems like the whole church streams through that narrow door. <laughs> and I was thinking today, you know, the stained glass window of Christ on the cross and the pulpit. And here, Adventers, 
you know, coming through this narrow door. I would put that text, you know, I was thinking, I've never really stopped under that door and looked at the inscribed woodwork because there is a text there. Anybody know what that text is? Well, you're a lot like me then, obviously, because I don't know what the text is. I, as I sat there today in worship, I, I said, I've got to stop. And then I, I sneaked out after communion, so I didn't stop and read the text. <laughs> uh, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. And I just think that that's, it's a kind of neat, for me anyways, a neat discipleship picture. And then true and false prophets, true and false disciples, uh, that very sobering conclusion. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we do your works? Didn't we cast out demons? Didn't we heal diseases? And the Lord will say, I never knew you. It's not like I knew you for a while. I never knew you. And then the picture of wise and foolish builders. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against the house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish person who built his house, her house, on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell like a great crash. Amen. Boy, I, I, you know, preachers have to kind of ease their congregation out of the sermon. Um, I thought Philip Jenkins, uh, Jensen did a great job here bringing a conclusion to the sermon this morning. Uh, Jesus didn't. His conclusion often in his sermons was very abrupt. You get the impression that uh, he is not easing people out the door. Uh, You would not probably say to Jesus as you passed him by as you were exiting, uh, nice sermon. It just didn't work for that. Um, And when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as the teachers of the law. It's a beautiful statement. Um, What body language did Jesus have for giving the Sermon on the Mount? Do you remember, just offhand? He was seated. He was seated to give the sermon. Now, how animated or charismatic can a person be seated not very if you're seated you're in dialogue now a lot of the teaching i do um at beeson because my classes are small around uh, 10 uh, in each of my two classes i do face to face eye to eye there's not much between me and the student I find that there's a limitation even in using notes with 10 people uh, to have my head buried down and, and be reading my notes kind of doesn't work. I have to engage them. And this is how Jesus taught. It must have been conversational. 
it must have been sort of face to face. He could read the, their facial expressions. A year ago, I'll stand just for your convenience. <laughs> a, a year ago, uh, I was in Israel with 10 pastors from here in Birmingham, quite a cross-section denominationally and ethnically. Um, I'm in a ministry called Macedonia Ministry. It's a group that sort of brings together pastors for a three-year commitment. And part of the bonus of being together is a free trip to Israel. And uh, I have never been to Israel, uh, in spite of people saying, well, how do you do your work without ever having been to Israel? Well, I'm able to do my work very nicely without being to Israel. And it didn't change my work. I enjoyed the trip very much. But the week in Galilee was really kind of wonderful. Um, it helps to have it all paid for. Um, but we were in Galilee for a week, and one of the impressions I had from walking around in Galilee was how close everything is. How limited, in a nice way, was the parameter of Jesus' Galilean ministry. Capernaum is right there, where it's thought Jesus fed the 5,000, kind of right there. Um, and the place that traditionally people have felt Jesus may have given the Sermon on the Mount is right there. The Franciscan sisters now have a shrine. It's quite developed. There's, uh, quote, holy relics, and there's all sorts of stuff that in my low, low church Protestant orientation doesn't quite jive with me. But um, it was really interesting to sort of see the physical surroundings in which and whether in that spot or another is where Jesus would have taught. And uh, low range, not a mountain, but low range hills. And uh, you wonder if he sat below so that people sort of was kind of an amphitheater effect or whether Jesus was on top and, and speaking down. Uh, the context seems to be the disciples plus others. When he gives the Sermon on the, at the end of the world, Matthew 24 and 25, it's just the disciples on the Mount of Olives. But here, Jesus is with the disciples plus a crowd as he communicates kind of the essence and the shape of the Christian life. It was interesting, the day that we were there, we were going to walk from the site that's traditionally thought to be where Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to walk down to the Sea of Galilee. And you can cut through a farmer's land, and we asked for permission, the ten pastors and I, and it started to pour. It was raining. So these ten pastors, myself included, are slip-sliding down these uh, small hills in the mud. Some of us fell in the mud. Uh, to get to the Sea of Galilee. Um, so it's in close walking distance, all of this. But something of the earthiness and the immediacy gave a certain kind of concreteness to what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. We've got a few moments, so let's start with the Beatitudes. You can read this, and much of what I've said there is sort of in form in that reading. So again, don't look at your papers. Uh, sorry. <laughs> uh, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, 
for they blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the mourned, for they will be comforted. Here's the thing that you should struggle with this week. Is this a description of the less of the least? Is this a description of the bottom, the zeros, the lost? Dallas Willard, and let me quote from him, he says that this is a list of human lasts. The gospel of the kingdom is that no one is beyond beatitude. Okay, here you're describing sort of the bottom rung of society. Those who mourn, even those who are self-righteous because they think that they're seeking after the kingdom of God. Here he calls these the homeless cases. Homeless, unemployed, the disabled, the inner city child, the emotionally starved, the lonely, the incompetent, the stupid. Willard says, it's true that earth has no sorrow that cannot heal. So he rephrases the Beatitudes this way. Blessed are the spiritual zeros, the spiritually bankrupt, deprived, and deficient, the spiritual beggars, those without a wisp of religion, when the kingdom of the heavens comes upon them. He quotes from Simon and Garfunkel. These are the sat upon, spat upon, ratted on. One of the reasons Willard interprets the Beatitudes this way is a conversation that he had with a woman who explained that her son would have nothing to do with the Christian faith because of how he understood the Beatitudes. She told me her son had dropped his Christian identification and left the church because of the Beatitudes. He was a strong, intelligent man who had made the military his profession. As often happens, he had been told that the Beatitudes with its list of the poor and the sad and the weak and the mild were a picture of the ideal Christian. He explained to his mother simply, this is not me. I can never be like that. But is that what we're supposed to be, Willard asks? Are we supposed to be like this? Frankly, most people think so, but they could hardly be more mistaken, Willard says. More common than such outright rejection of Christianity so understood is a constant burden of a guilty conscientiousness born for not of being or wanting to be on this list of supposedly God-preferred. What do you think on the Beatitudes? Are they a list of the spiritual zeros? Or are they a character profile of the faithful disciple? A character profile that one would never graduate from that you would always be characterized as being poor in spirit, always being characterized as mourning for your sin, always characterized as hungering and thirsting after righteousness. I find it really, Dallas Willard is a, a wonderful Christian thinker, and I guess I was taken back in his book, The Divine Conspiracy, that he framed the Beatitudes this way. In classical orthodoxy, it's always been understood that the Beatitudes are a character description of the faithful disciple. 
And he seems to be reframing it so that it is almost like uh, here's those described at the bottom of society and God's grace is available for them. Now, is that true? Of course it's true. There's no one who would escape the benefit of the grace of Christ or that the grace of God would be extended to. Of course that's true. But what if this description in the Beatitudes is really a description of what grace provides? Grace makes me poor in spirit. Grace makes me poor in the sense of being dependent upon God. Now, what would decide the definition of the Beatitudes? Either spiritual zeros or the great description of the mature disciple. That's pretty polarized, isn't it? Either this is the bottom or this is the description of who we ought to be because of the grace of God. Well, you don't have Bibles. <laughs> I have said, and I'll, I'll repeat it, I will know that I'm successful at the Advent when you start bringing Bibles. <laughs> Is that rude for me to say? <laughs> you, could, you could take the Pew Bible from the service you've just come from and bring it here, um, leave it on the chair, and I, somehow, magically, I'm sure that it will get back to where it belongs. Um, Psalm 34 reads, This poor man called. Psalm 34, verse 6. This poor man called, and the Lord heard him, and he saved him out of all of his troubles. The key for deciding the definition of the Beatitudes is understanding that each Beatitude is defined by the Old Testament. The meaning of these Beatitudes is rooted in the Old Testament. So it's not like you read the Beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, and then free associate with however you want to interpret that in culture. That doesn't work. You see, that's what this... uh, macho man who was in the military did. The son of the mother that complained to Dallas Willard that my son gave up Christianity because he didn't want to be like this. Meek, mourning, poor in spirit. He was free associating those attributes with with sort of the wimpish, passive, lacking of all kind of courage and strength kind of person. That's not what the Old Testament would define these Beatitudes as. That to be poor in spirit is not to be lazy or slothful, but it is to be utterly dependent upon the living God. I realized before God that my best posture is on my knees in humble adoration and humble reception of his grace. Now, how do you get there? How do you get to the place where you are poor in spirit, acknowledging your dependence upon the living God? You get there by the grace of God. You're never really going to mourn for your sin without the grace of God giving you the gift of repentance and the realization of 
a wonderful and holy and loving God versus uh, our own fallenness. Meekness, define it by the Old Testament, and who is the meekest man? The face of the earth? I mean, that's what's said at one point in the Old Testament, Moses. Why? Because Moses is utterly respectful and dependent upon Yahweh and subservient to the word of Yahweh. So there's, as you think, I hope you'll take this sheet away and think through it, read about, uh, read the sermon and read this and ask yourself, is this the list of spiritual zeros or is this the character profile that you only get to by the grace of Christ? That it is, in fact, evidence of God's grace in one's life. It's not trying to achieve grace. It's the state of grace. Uh, a great line from Spurgeon on this, if I can find it. Charles Spurgeon warned, Do not fall into the mistake of supposing that the opening verses of the Sermon on the Mount set forth how we are to be saved. Or you may cause your soul to stumble. You will find the fullest light upon the matter of how to be saved in the other parts of the Lord's teaching. But here he talks about the question, who are the saved? Or what are the marks and evidences of a work of grace on the soul? When God's grace is there in a person's life, they'll have no trouble acknowledging their poverty of spirit and their dependence upon the living God. When the work of grace is evident in a person's life, they will have no problem understanding their sinfulness and the need for God's mercy. When God's grace is evident in a person's life, there will be a hunger and a thirst for the righteousness of God. And the eighth beatitude there, they will be persecuted for my name's sake. That will be evidence of the grace of Christ. We'll end it there. Let's pray together. Lord God, thank you for delivering this sermon. We ask that by your Holy Spirit, we would grow in our understanding of it. I thank you for my sisters and brothers in Christ here. May you bless them this week. May they be mindful of your presence. Uh, may you work in and through them for your honor and for your glory. And together we pray in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Amen.